be with you to share the Word of God as He speaks. Our prayer is that He reveals Himself to us in a way of truth, being gracious to us in our sin, and preparing us for heaven. And uh, as we prepare to come into His Word, let's uh, go to Him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we love You because You first loved us. We are grateful for your goodness and for your favor, for your mercies that are new each morning of our lives, your compassions that never fail. For that reason alone, we find ourselves in your favor. We find ourselves in this place. We find ourselves called from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your marvelous light. May you encourage us through your word, through your truth, by your spirit, glorify your name, exalt and magnify your holiness and our presence that we would recognize not only the depth and weight of our sin, but also the gravity and the power of your holiness, of your power to save, of your salvation that is ours through Christ, your son, in whose name we pray, amen. Mark chapter 4, parable of the mustard seed. Mark chapter 4, verse 30. I'll read verse 34. And Jesus said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable? shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You'll see in your bulletins, I didn't come up with a fancy title this time, but this morning as we were actually in prayer, one popped into my head, and that was simply, be ready for anything when it comes to God. Be ready to have your presuppositions changed in an instant. Be ready to have your expectations not met and your unexpectations met. I threw such a word as unexpectation. Uh, Earlier this year, Ernie Johnson, he's a NBA uh, basketball analyst on TNT. He's grown up in a sports family, sports home. He grew up with a father who uh, commented on baseball for Turner Network and for the Braves uh, throughout the 70s and 80s. He wrote a book titled Unscripted, um, the Unpredictable Events That Make Life Extraordinary. And it was really interesting sort of biography slash autobiography and 
the idea is in the book you look for those moments in life that were not planned and be grateful for what they are. And he's a believer, so he came at it from uh, sometimes more explicitly, sometimes less so, but from a Christian perspective of understanding that God gives us what he calls blackberry moments. And he kind of explains that if you're interested read the book. It's, a, it's an easy read. It's a good read. It's an encouraging read. And I've often, you know, thought in the course of my brief ministry, uh, if I were ever to write something like that, I would call it unexpected. Something about the unpredictability of God and how that makes life amazing. Because so often, as a Christian, you find God doing things just when you think you have things figured out. It's like that writer to the Proverbs says, you know, one of the many things I don't understand, the way of, of women on earth or something like that. As a Christian, you think you might understand the way of God on earth, and then as soon as you think you've got something figured out, boom, it changes. He turns it over on you. It happened in the Old Covenant. It happened with Jesus and with his disciples. It happened in the church. It happened to Paul, who went, underwent all of these lashings and all of these difficulties and all of these struggles and trials and uh, had a thorn in his flesh and pleaded for God to remove the thorn in his flesh. And God said, no, because my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And that's like the major paradox that we all face. Um, He says also earlier in Corinthians in the first book, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So it's one thing for God to do unexpected things in the eyes of the world. It's perhaps another thing for God to do unexpected things in the eyes of the church. But he does it. Think of Gideon and the 300 soldiers. Uh, A human mockery is an army against thousands upon 10,000s, and yet God wins the victory with Gideon and his 300 men. Or Joseph and his brothers, the story of a man seemingly uh, deceived or, or, or left behind, by his brothers, thrown in a well, sold off into slavery, you know, presumably never to be for, never to be heard from again, and then become second in charge of Pharaoh's army. Unexpected. But God uses, again, uh, those passages like 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 Corinthians 12, where it talks about uh, the foolishness of the gospel, the weakness of men, and the strength of God, is, is when all the things in the world, they see it as foolish and uh, as unimportant, and we have to be aware as, as the church that we don't fall into that same trap. The world tells you that bigger is better, that more is better, that new is better. And we have to be careful that we don't fall into that same trap. That we have to be ready to hear God, what He says, to see Him where He is, and frankly, to be ready for anything. Because the most, I think perhaps the times that God does the things that are unexpected is when we become more worldly in our thinking. When we, again, we think maybe we have it figured out or when we think, okay, God is going to do this here, but instead of doing A, He does B. Or we're caught completely unaware. So we have to be ready. It's not about bigger numbers, a bigger budget, or even greater influence, whether political or something like that. Uh, God is just as pleased to act uh, in ways, to act and work in ways that we would never expect, in ways that we would never choose, in ways that really help us to see that it is His power at work, it is His hand involved in these things. 
It's really not of our own strength. It's really not of our own power. Um, do not despise the day of small things. Right? Another excellent passage uh, to consider. Do not despise the day of small things. And we have these ideas. We have this idea laid out in the parable of the mustard seed. Uh, like all parables, you've got to pay attention. Like all of Scripture. Uh, Because the disciples are expecting a grand introduction of the heavenly king with his army. Perhaps fire, perhaps lightning, perhaps thunder and earthquakes. And they're expecting that when the Messiah comes, the Messiah is going to come in fullness with all of his heavenly angels. And he's going to establish the kingdom of God on earth. And here he comes making these apparently major promises, but not really delivering much in results. At least as far as they're expecting. Jesus reminds the church, then and now, that God's kingdom will come through a process. Remember like creation, God didn't just snap his fingers and there it was. He worked through a process. His work may often seem small in our eyes. It's not the way we would do it. A lot of times that's probably a better thing than a worse thing. For God to do things not the way we would do them. So it might seem small. It might seem insignificant. It might seem it is unexpected. But we have to trust to remember that God's wisdom and timing are perfect. And use these reminders as as occasions to consider that truth. The parable is an encouragement for us, for the church, that God is always at work even if His work seems slower than we would like. God is always at work, even if it seems that he's not doing things the way that we think he should be doing them. This parable has occasionally been challenged, as often in Scripture, people want to look at things from a perspective of unbelief. Well, the mustard seed is not technically the smallest of all seeds. So therefore, the Bible is false. I mean, that's the logical leap that a lot of folks make when they see what they believe to be minor inconsistencies or major inconsistencies or contradictions or disagreements among gospel writers, for example. Um, The simple response to that is, that Jesus isn't teaching a botany class to a group of Middle Eastern students. He's using a metaphor from nature, the very nature that he himself created, mind you. He's using a metaphor from nature to make a spiritual point. That's what parables are. They are lessons from life to make spiritual points. And what he's saying is the kingdom of God, no matter how small or insignificant its beginning may be, will continue to expand and be a blessing to all those who enter it. No matter how small or insignificant it starts or appears to be at its beginning, it's going to grow and be a blessing. We'll talk about some of that a little bit more about the mustard seed idea, but we're going to look at basically two points, the small start and the great growth, and then at the end we'll consider what he says in verse 33 and what Mark says in verses 33 and 34 about the use of of parables, why Jesus uses parables to make points. So he begins a parable by asking a question. 
great way to invite your audience to listen to what you have to say. Ask a question. Jesus is a tremendous public speaker, knows how to get the attention of his listeners. He uses an agricultural metaphor to those in an agrarian society. Uh, He's using a parable to teach the crowds, his disciples, the nature of his kingdom and the way his kingdom was going to be revealed in their lifetimes. Their lack of understanding about God's kingdom is evident in questions in chapter 10. Mark reveals a question from the disciples beginning at verse 35. James and John want to sit at the right hand of the Lord in glory. And so Jesus proceeds to rebuke them for their misunderstanding about his kingdom and its purpose and their place in it. They want to be seated above and exalted above the rest. And the other guys, I don't know if Mark says this specifically, but the other disciples get a little bit ticked off. Who are you to ask that? Why would you do that? And Jesus has to, of course, play peacemaker and calm things down. But they fundamentally misunderstand the purpose of God's kingdom on earth. They're impatient. At one point, the sons of thunder ask for fire from heaven to come down and consume the unbelievers. Sometimes we get like that. We see wickedness abound, and we think, oh Lord, wouldn't it be easy if you just destroy the unbelievers? Zap them with lightning or fire from heaven. Watch out for that type of thinking because Jesus rebukes their perspective. Even after the resurrection, the disciples ask, has the time finally come for God's kingdom to be restored to Israel? To Israel. Here in the piece of Middle Eastern real estate is God's kingdom coming. They still don't get it. And at one point, Jesus refers to them as dollars or fools because their expectation is not in line with what God has revealed, with what God is planning to do. And that's the rub often for the church. Our expectation is not in line with what God's intent is. That God's kingdom would start small in their eyes was a very difficult teaching to accept, especially with the expectation that the Messiah would be this warrior king who would come and lead his people to glorious victory. I've spoken to rabbis through, you know, you talk about unexpected. I never grew up wanting to be a prison chaplain. I wanted to be a famous millionaire athlete. Later, when I was a little dumber, I wanted to be an honest politician. I never wanted to be a prison chaplain. People talk about God's sense of humor. If you can speak of that reverently, there it is. It's God working in unexpected ways. Using you, using me, however he sees fit, because he gives the grace that we need in the place where he sends us, in the place where he places us. Rabbis I've spoken to in the prison system have said they're waiting for that Messiah. And, you know, of course, you're arguing He's come. They're like, no, but they're waiting for this warrior. They're waiting for this, you know, this, this highfalutin king to come and, 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 and usher in the kingdom of God. And so uh, uh, maybe sometimes the impatience, the desire is not le- unlike church plants, small churches that begin small. I started my ministry in a church plant, and there's a certain desire, hope, 
maybe an expectation, maybe an uncertainty, but waiting for God to do certain things or to act in certain ways. Uh, when you're a new minister at 30, your, your, your strongest virtue is not patience. And so you tend to think, well, okay, it's not happening this way, so what can I do here? And the church has to be careful not to get involved in too many um, extraneous ideas or, or, or purposes outside of ministering the gospel because then we, become, we don't become the church any longer. We become, I don't know, a, a, a country club or, or a place to hang out. The gospel has to be central to all that we do. Whatever we do, the gospel has to be central, whether it's uh, ministry to those who are depressed, whether it's an addiction ministry. These are legitimate and necessary ministries in which the church ought to find its involvement and its engagement as the church of Jesus Christ. But if we lose the centrality of the gospel in whatever we do, we've lost the battle. It's not the church anymore. It's not the church. So we have to be careful in our impatience as maybe church planners or small churches. You know, what can we do to make things bigger? What can we do to make things better? What can we do to increase our budget? Well, you can trust the Lord. Like, oh, okay, great. That's the stock answer that everybody hears. Trust the Lord. What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, that's another discussion. But we have to be mindful that we allow room for God to work. We don't set our expectations over and against the way God may intend to pursue the growth of the church, the edification of the church. Now you talk about discipline. Discipline hurts, but it's meant for good. We don't like that, but that's what God uses it for. God's Work is often different than our expectations. We have to give time for the seed once planted to take root and grow. Verse 31, it is like. With what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed which when sown in the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Now, I'm going to suggest something radical and that is that Jesus knew the mustard seed was not Technically, literally, the smallest of all seeds on the earth. The seed of this particular plant was generally the smallest in Palestine in his day, in a typical Palestinian garden. Because of this, it became common to reference that seed when talking about small seeds. Has the mustard seed been used in other portions of Scripture to reference small things? Yes. Matthew 17, verse 20, if you have the faith of a mustard seed. So it wasn't out of the blue, out of the ordinary. Jesus wasn't a moron because he was using this example. He was using something that people would understand. He was an excellent public speaker. He knew how to minister to the crowds. He knew how to speak in ways that would uh, reveal truth to them. I have the word hyperbole in my notes. Uh, Hyperbole, if you young kids don't understand hyperbole, it's exaggeration. Have you ever used exaggeration to communicate something? You know, uh, I, you know I, I've been waiting all day long. No, you haven't. You've been waiting a while. For some of the perspective, maybe you've been waiting a minute and that's all day long. For others, maybe it's a little bit longer. Or I caught a fish and it was this big. The idea is you're using hyperbole, you're using exaggeration to make a point. That often happens in Scripture. 
Mel Gibson, years ago, after uh, The Passion of the Christ came out, was asked in an interview, do you believe the Bible to be literally true? And that's a bad question. Because, no, the Bible isn't literally true. The Bible is truth. The Bible reveals truth truthfully. But the Bible also uses simile. The Bible uses metaphor. The Bible uses symbolism. The Bible speaks literally. So you have to let the Bible, as a book, reveal, let God reveal himself as he intends. So Jesus is using a simile from nature to make a spiritual point. The seed is the word of God. The kingdom of God is like what happens to the mustard seed. It's like what happens to the mustard seed. It starts out in the seemingly small and insignificant in an unexpected way. And look what God does. Look what God accomplishes. Look at what he will accomplish. Trust him to know what he's doing. Isn't that a novel idea? Trust God to know what he's doing. What's particularly striking in Jesus' life and kingdom is the weakness and the seeming insignificance that characterized his own life and ministry. Jesus' life on earth was not great from a worldly perspective. There was no grand royal entrance. I mean, there were heralds from heaven who sang when he was born, but there were no palaces, there were no red carpets, there were no, you know, uh, paparazzi or cameras. It was very quiet. It was humble. He was born in a manger, placed in a manger in a barn. He spent his life in the company of social outcasts. Now, tax collectors, prostitutes, the unmentionables, those types of people Jesus spent his life being around. Simple farmers, fishermen, those generally rejected by the hoity-toity upper classes. His last act on earth was to die a painful and a humiliating death on a cross between two criminals, having been forsaken by all of those who had not long before sworn him their greatest allegiance. Oh, even if they all leave you. Is that Peter who said, even if they all leave you, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And it happened. And that solidifies Paul's idea. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Jesus didn't come and do things that the church expected he would do. And there's no earthly explanation, frankly, why such a man would gain the kind of following he did to change the course of history, to change the course of the entire world. Like the mustard seed, the kingdom of earth began, kingdom of God on earth began as something insignificant and powerless and small. Weak even, we might say. In Acts chapter 5, Gamaliel stood up and assured the Jerusalem council. He said, if the apostles' work was of mere men, it would soon die and be forgotten from memory. But, and I'm paraphrasing here, if the movement is of God, then those who are opposed to that movement are going to be found fighting against God Himself. So leave them alone. If it's not of God, it's going to fall away and fall apart like all these other historically insignificant movements had fallen. But if it's true, leave them alone or you're going to be found fighting against God Himself. 
a new religion in antiquity, a new one amongst many who, you know, they worshipped at the tomb of the unknown God. Acts chapter 17, Paul at the Areopagus, the God whom you don't know, I tell you, I'm proclaiming him. A religious people like that, a new religion here amongst many with so many enemies and so few friends should never have taken root except for the grace and the power and the work of God. Verse 32, we have that small start moving on to a promise of great growth. When it is sown, the the seed, the smallest of all the seeds on the earth, yet when it is sown, it grows up, it becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Uh, Mustard continues to grow today in the Middle East. By about this time of year, the plant is anywhere from maybe 10 to 15 feet tall and can loosely be called a tree. The branches are strong enough for birds to come and make nests to find shade from the sun, shelter from the elements. What is the significance of the birds? I think the birds are are a picture of future believers. This is a picture of the growth of the kingdom and of the the coming in, the ingathering of the nations. The church grows... And people come to rest, to find rest, to nest in the protective branches of the church. The kingdom expands, becomes a blessing for men, women, and children from every tribe and tongue and nation. People from all around are coming in even as the church extends and grows and extends its branches. A plant that had started out as nothing more than a simple seed had become a shrub and then large enough to be called a tree, dwarfing all the other plants of the garden, being the place that you come for refuge, being the place that you come for rest. Is the church a place of refuge? Is the church a place of rest? Is the church a place of hope? Is the church a place of encouragement? Is the church a place of comfort? Is the church a place where you can come and bear your soul and find prayer and find support and find help and find encouragement? Is the church a place where you can go and be vulnerable and be open and be received even in all your weakness, even in all your warts, even in all your sin? Is the church a place where you can come and you can find acceptance, you can find grace? Jesus made it so. So we have to live in that truth. The picture is painted, you know, Jesus, the master preacher, the master illustrator, uh, paints a picture of the growth of God's kingdom. And as we see, as the church continues to grow and expand at the day of Pentecost, the church was blessed at one point, almost overnight, 120 grew to 3,000 and soon to 8,000 in the book of Acts. Almost overnight, thousands upon thousands are added to the church. And as Gamaliel had pointed out, Such growth could only be attributed to God's work. Too many times the church focuses on political influence, finances, money, um, social justice. Social justice has its place, but cannot replace the gospel. Social justice and the gospel must go hand in hand. They cannot be excluded, one or social justice ought not be excluded 
from the purpose of the gospel. The church does these things. Why? For influence, to impress the unbeliever. Look how smart we are. Look how strong we are. And the church tends to start to think of itself as, well, they're not going to see me the right way that I want them to see me if I keep God front and center. So we're going to try to maybe move God out of the picture a little bit. We're going to start doing other things. We're going to focus on these other things. You've got to have both together. You've got to have both together. The kingdom of God is never going to seem like much to the world if it remains faithful to Jesus. But what did Jesus say? My kingdom is not of this world. Surprise, surprise. Jesus says, don't be surprised if the world hates you because guess what? It hated me first. And if it hated me, it's going to hate you. Let's consider then Jesus' use of parables. By its definition, a parable is a story designed to teach a lesson. Think about parables. If you read parables, sometimes you get confused, like the parable of the unjust judge. Somebody might read that and think, well, God is being called an unjust judge, and I have a hard time with that. Well, there's a deeper point that's being expressed in the parable of the unjust judge. It's about persistence in prayer. So when you're reading a parable, you're looking for a central point that's being given. Sometimes, in fact, all those other details, you don't want to get bogged down in the other details because it's a, it's a spiritual point designed to teach us a truth or a lesson about life on earth. A, li- a message about earthly life to convey a message about heaven and about eternity. Uh, the disciples in Matthew 13 asked Jesus why he spoke to them in parables. His reply was that he was using these stories to reveal the mysteries of God to a particular people. Mystery is not like a difficult puzzle or an Agatha Christie case. But as Jesus uses it, what does mystery mean? Mystery refers to the secret will of God that we cannot know unless he first reveals it to us. And that's, every sinner is in that boat. You do not know the will of God. You do not know the purpose and the power and the work of God unless he first reveals himself to you. You are born with blinders. Blind eyes, stopped up ears, a heart of stone because of Adam and Eve, because of the original sin that affected us all, that brought us all into our total depravity. So unless God reveals himself to you, the mystery is God's will that you cannot know unless he reveals it to you. So Jesus is teaching, frankly, as he's talking about parables, he's speaking about the doctrine of election. Some are given understanding of God's mysteries and some are not. Why is that? Because some are dumb and some are smart? No. It's because of the purpose of God in election. Because the purpose of God in saving sinners. Simply speaking, God saves some and others he does not. Now, this isn't to speak about the justice of God or the unfairness of God or the capriciousness of God. Simply put, what do we all deserve? Does anyone deserve heaven? Depending whom you ask, you might get someone who says yes. But biblically speaking, no one deserves heaven. We all deserve hell. We all deserve condemnation. We all deserve judgment. And God would have been perfectly glorified and justified in sending us all to hell. But the beautiful thing about the gospel, which is what makes it good news, is that we can be saved from our condemnation. We can be saved from the destruction that we deserve because of Jesus, because of the cross, because he went to the cross and suffered the wrath of God for us, paying our penalty 
that penalty that we could never pay so that we can be forgiven. And so that anyone is brought to light from the darkness is not because you were smarter or you were better looking or you were stronger, but because of the grace of God, because of the power and the mercy of God. Jesus used parables to expose the hardness of sinful hearts. Many believers then, many believers, or many people, I should say, then, and many people now who believe that they can be made right with God as long as they're good enough in this life. If you ever get a chance on YouTube, look up some of Ray Comfort's interviews. Uh, he asks people, you know, just very basic questions. Heaven, hell, death, life, goodness, morality, all that kind of thing. And striking the responses that you get. And he tears down people, I think in a kind way, as much as he can be. I mean, some of the people are just nasty themselves. But he shares with them the idea that you're really not as good as you think you are. You're really not all that. In fact, you're a little bit less. And that's truth, that we have to be mindful of how we share that and reveal that and speak that to others. Jesus was pretty clear. Many believe themselves to be on good terms if they believe in God, that they're on good terms with God because they've lived a good life, because they've tried doing good to other people. They play the comparison game. Well, I'm not as bad as Hitler. I'm not as bad as this. I'm not as bad as that. Well, who would Hitler compare himself to? I have no idea. (laughs) Stalin, maybe. I don't know. You know, the comparison game is dangerous. Because you can make yourself look really good or look really bad on the basis of how other people are. The comparison by which we hold ourselves to is not the perfection of men, but it's the perfection of God. It's the holiness of God. And we all fail that miserably. Play the comparison game with God and you've lost unless you're in Christ. Unless you can, as the Southerners would say, plead the blood. Plead the blood of Jesus. Um, Yeah, I'll leave that for now. Verse 33, with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He spoke as people were able to hear, as they were able to understand. Yes, sometimes people were confused by parables. Sometimes people were confused by Jesus' ministry. And sometimes people say, well, Jesus was never very clear. Jesus never explicitly claimed to be God in his ministry. Well, he did, if you pay attention. And if you still say that he didn't, why did so many want to kill him? Why did so many want to end his life? Why were so many people angry with Jesus for his message and for his ministry? Because he upset the religious establishment by saying they were wrong and he was right. I alone, I am the only, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus, come on, this is my money, this is my livelihood, this is, get out. People knew what he was saying. One commentator, people, as they were able to hear or understand Uh, this means one commentator says, in the school of Christ, none may move on to the advanced lessons until they have mastered the elementary studies. If you're a child, what this means is kids don't desire to grow up too quickly. Take your time. Be patient. How many years was Paul preparing for ministry before he went into his ministry? Long time. 
even though Jesus' parables weren't always fully understood, he was able to keep the people in attention. But we still have to ask, how does one gain understanding and insight into these mysteries? It's by coming to Jesus as a disciple. It's by coming to Jesus as a learner. There is no neutrality when it comes to morality. There is no neutrality when it comes to humankind versus God. You're either for him or against him. God makes that very clear. Some people say, well, let's have a discussion about belief in God and whether he's real or not, uh, but let's just assume at first he's not real. Well, we've lost the battle. Why even have a discussion? Prove to me that God exists. Well, prove to me that he doesn't. So if you give that, you can't have the discussion. If you argue that there is neutrality, there is not neutrality. There is either belief or unbelief. Coming to Jesus in humility as a disciple or as a learner is the only way you're going to find the grace of God. It's the only way you're going to begin to come to an understanding of who he is. Scripture speaks about asking in faith without doubting. The Spirit will grant wisdom to understand many of these mysteries of the kingdom, but it's a process of constant learning. When you become a convert, you don't suddenly understand everything. It's just the beginning of a life of growth and in learning. Like in school, you begin to learn bits and pieces to put together the larger, uh, put the pieces together so you can get to the whole picture. Like making that puzzle, you start bits and pieces here, and then finally you get the big picture after a process of time. And it says in verse 34, uh, uh, he did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. I would have loved to have been the fly in the wall when Jesus explained these things privately to his disciples. And we do see some of that, but Mark doesn't reveal more than what he says. When Jesus ascended, he gave us his Holy Spirit, he said, to lead us and to guide us into all truth. So the Spirit is with us to give us understanding. The Spirit is with us to give us insight. The Spirit is with us to lead us and to direct us as a church. And by God's grace, the parables become clearer. They become better understood by the power of of God and the work of His Spirit. And I guess, in the end, if we want, again, to remember nothing else from this, remember that God is often glorified when He works in unexpected ways, when He works in ways that may not seem all that glorious to us, all that fantastic to us, or wonderful. Remember the life of Jesus. What about the man Jesus? He was a man despised and rejected among men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The description of the Messiah in Isaiah 53 is not someone you would see in the street and immediately be drawn to him, you know, like a, like a, a mosquito to a light or something like that. Jesus wasn't physically appealing. So it's almost like he appeared as a man and lived his life to draw attention from himself in spite of who he was. And yet look at what he accomplished. Look at the truth he spoke, the truth he revealed, and the beauty of it. Jesus would be a horrible televangelist. Probably not great teeth. Probably not the best hair. Doubt he would wear the nicest suits. But when you see that, are you seeing God or are you seeing man? 
What are you seeing when you see a messenger of God? Whether a fellow believer, well, fellow believer, whether a minister, whether someone in the congregation, whether an evangelist, what are people trying to show you when they're speaking to you about God? How are they living their lives when they're talking about being a Christian, when they're talking about being a follower of Jesus Christ? Because frankly, truth is not often found where men and women shine, where the TV cameras are filming, where the money is pouring in. It's more generally in the place of meekness and in the place of humility and the place of quiet service. Situations where we're more likely to call upon God and praise Him rather than looking at a person or a personality. Charles Spurgeon, paraphrase him, says, it's always an act of faith to sow seed because for a time you have to give it up and you get nothing in return. The farmer takes the best seed and buries it in the field, essentially throwing it away. Only his faith saves him from being deemed a maniac because he expects it to return to him 50-fold. If you've never seen or heard of a fall harvest, you'd think that a man burying good wheat under the clods of dirt had gone mad. Likewise, if you've never seen conversions, it might seem absurd to be constantly preaching about a man who was nailed to a tree. Believe it and tell it. Proclaim it with conviction Proclaim it with gratitude. Deepen your understanding and your humility. Paul says to the Corinthians that knowledge puffs up. Knowledge tends to make people prideful. We're a smart church. We're a smart people. We really got our doctrine. We're a bunch of jerks, but at least we know our scripture. Knowledge puffs up. Maintain humility. Maintain compassion. Pursue the weak things of the world and find the glory of God in the places where nobody else is going to look. Find the glory of God in the dirty and in the difficult ministry. Spurgeon says again, I'll quote, Believe in what you're doing when you tell it. Believe the great results spring from slender causes. Go on sowing your mustard seed of salvation by faith, expecting and believing that fruit will come. Do you in your ministry expect and believe that fruit is going to come? Not just flying by the seat of your pants and hoping for the best, but truly in faith expecting God to accomplish great things. That's the parable of the mustard seed. And again, uh, I'm not plagiarizing because I'm quoting, but I'll close here with Bishop J.C. Ryle. He says, One child may be the beginning of a flourishing school. One conversion may be the beginning of a mighty church. One word may be the beginning of some blessed Christian enterprise. One small seed may be the beginning of a rich harvest of saved souls. So again, the unexpected. And if nothing else is unexpected... It's the cross of Jesus Christ. There is the salvation of God. There is the punishment that our Savior endured in our place so that we can be forgiven and that we can have life.
Amen. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord God, for your grace. We thank you for your power. We thank you for your salvation. We thank you for loving us. We thank you, Lord God, for being merciful to us, being patient with us, forgiving us in our hard-heartedness, in our sin, in our foolishness. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would remind us as we pursue truth and knowledge to pursue humility and compassion, to seek after you with our whole being, to remember the grace that you've shown to us in our salvation, the grace that was undeserved, that spared us from the pits of hell, and to remember to show that same grace and compassion to others. Remembering that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit goes before a fall. So Lord, preserve us from the temptations of this earth and this life. Preserve us from the temptations that Satan would give us to cause us to think that we're better than others because of where we are or that we need not reach out because somebody else will do it for us. Give us the courage. Give us the compassion. Give us the conviction, Lord, in our own lives and the lives of the members of our family. Help us, Lord, not to uh, let the busyness of life crowd out the ministry of the gospel and all the places where we find ourselves. Encourage us heart and soul as we continue to seek, to strive, to worship, to honor our King and our Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.